Hello, it's me, Tim. Today I'm chatting to Melissa Harrison, who's a writer, of course. I mean, well, actually, it's not of course, is it? Because I've had non-writers on the show and they've been very interesting as well. But um, she's written three novels and she has edited four anthologies of poetry. She's done non-fiction writing as well. Uh, she was shortlisted for the Costa Novel of the Year Award. She was longlisted for the Bailey's Women's Prize for Fiction and longlisted for the Encore Award, which I believe is for second novels. All of which is, you know, I think it's it's, it's about the story, isn't it? Rather than the plaudits. Ah, fortunately, she's an amazing writer. And I, I just say, I just uh, chuck those things in at the beginning for the more, uh, the more, the more, more cynical amongst you uh to get to get you to your ears to prick up but mainly um we talk about her amazing nature writing and i love nature writing uh, myself i always find it a slightly reductive term because of course nature isn't something that's apart from us you know nature is just life isn't it and, and she actually she goes into really interesting detail about you know how she's found the urban and nature how they cross over and how they're kind of linked and how you can't really not have nature in the world um and how that comes up in her first novel and we talk about her latest novel all among the barley and she gets into really really good detail she's incredibly frank and honest about the difficulties of writing and becoming a writer and all the all the sometimes the pain that's the word i want to use the pain that comes with that the assumptions that you can that you can become a writer that you can don that mantle and so we talk about that in detail we talk about fascism um and of course having written a novel set in the 1930s in east anglia which is when all among the barley her latest one is is set uh, with a female protagonist um, i was really really geeking out about the opportunity to talk to her about that because I've, I've you know i've read all among the barley and it's kind of like this incredibly rich uh textured layered uh, novel that that, that that brings the era to to life or this particular part of the era you know it's not a it's not a period piece um it's a it's a very 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 well, the, you know, it's the it's that com- that collision of the lo- the hyper local and the international, and how those things thread together. And I, I read it, and I, I remember reading it and going, "Fuck! Oh, she knows her shit." Because I've done so much research on that period, and particularly, you know, in Norfolk and Suffolk. So, you know, I <laughs> I know that she knows her stuff, and we talk about research, and uh, I lead her down a few conversational. Uh, cul-de-sacs as I uh, as as we talk about about uh, figures from the period and uh, you know the rise of the far right in that time and it's just I just really really enjoyed it and I think you're going to find it really interesting and right at the end uh, she makes a a, a fairly I don't want to spoil it but she makes a fairly impassioned creed occur for um, sometimes taking all the advice you hear on this podcast all the things you hear authors say all the things you hear me say and indeed and, uh, and and just chucking that aside at least temporarily and um i'll let you because obviously i want you to hear it in context but um, I'll, I'll let you get to that yourself and um i think it's i think it's really really worth listening to if you are inspired by hearing her talk and you want to read her stuff 
Um, I've put links in the show notes and on my website, timclepert.co.uk, to her novels. You can click through there and get one straight away. I'd love it if you did. If you want to get a copy of my book, The Honours, then I, there's a link there too. I would, of course, love you to support me. I'm a full-time author. Um, the only way I get paid is if people buy my books that I put out there. So, which is true for most authors, isn't it? We don't get paid if people don't read our books. So, yeah, if you'd like to, uh, if you like the podcast, that's the best way that you can support me. People ask me sometimes, you know, what's the best way I can support you? Buy a copy of my book, um, buy one for a friend. That's That'd be lovely. It makes such a huge difference. And just share the podcast if you like it. Remember to subscribe on SoundCloud uh, and or on iTunes. Give us a little rating and review on iTunes. I know these things are slightly uh, monotonous to hear, but it just it does make a huge difference in the old, uh, in the in the uh, mystical, uh, incohate algorithm that rules all our lives now, especially us. Open bunny quotes content producers. Or if you'd like to sidestep all that reading, or if you'd like an additional way to support the show then uh, except when okay on the occasion that we are supported by ad- advertisers this is all done by me uh entire around time when i should be in bed um which is why i have this slightly creepy asmr voice on when i'm recording because uh, my daughter's asleep in the next room um but the be- you know the other way that you can just uh, support or an additional way you can support is just to occasionally drop me a few squid um, into my uh, coffee page that's uh, there's a link to it but it's just a ko-fi.com forward slash timclare and you can go on there and in two clicks there's a link to it on my website that just says uh, buy me a coffee if you, you want to send me a few bucks some of you have done that and uh, that's how i pay for the hosting costs to keep me uh the podcast up on soundcloud and it's how i pay for my website costs as well and uh, thank you, thank you, thank you for everyone who's uh, chipped in for that. I am continue to be kind of gobsmacked that anyone does because you don't get anything out of it except that sort of satisfaction of knowing you've helped. Thank you. That's amazing. You you are good people. You're kind of kind of better than me. Um, in any case, I won't waffle any longer. I really hope you enjoy this chat. Uh, I really enjoyed meeting Melissa, and uh, I feel like I learned a lot. Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer, one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare and this is a show about writing for writers. Well, for anyone, but primarily if you're a writer, you're double welcome here. Um, so today I'm I'm with, and sometimes when I say, oh, I'm, I'm with someone, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not because they're uh on they're in america or something but today we're actually um in a room with uh the author melissa harrison how are you doing pretty good thanks it's lovely to see you and you're kind of like in the middle of you your book came out not last week but the week before is that's that right? right yep and so you are in the middle of i guess a maelstrom. Yeah, the the <laughs> the, the book tour, the much talked about, uh, the mythical idea of uh, a book tour. How how's it going for you? Uh, um, I'm quite tired. <laughs> um, I'm sitting on trains a lot. 
Um, I'm enjoying it, but I think it's going to be one of those things you look back on and go, God, that was hard. <laughs> this is your this is your third book, right? Your third novel. Third novel. Yeah. Yes. But fourth book and eighth, if you count the uh, anthologies that I edited. I'm... I've been really busy. I know. This is really <laughs> exciting because there's a bunch that I want to get into. And uh, I just, but I am a, uh, I'm a, I'm a stickler for, uh, for chronology. So just before we dive into that, uh, that, that uh, rich abundance of uh, work that you already, you have behind you, I'd like to just ask you a little bit about uh, what you come from and uh, how things got started for you. Oh, big question to start with. It's, co- um, it's colossal. Yeah, it is huge. Uh, I am someone that um, was comprehensively educated. Um, my mum uh, wanted to write and tried very hard to write and, and was unsuccessful, largely. Um, but I grew up in a house where um, there was a constant sound of a typewriter and lots of rejection letters. And mum was trying very, very hard to do something um, painful and difficult um and so I didn't want to do that I didn't think um and it wasn't until sometime after she had died that I was able to admit to myself that I wanted to write um but I spent a long time too scared to start in case it turned out that I couldn't do it um and and also not starting because I didn't think I had an idea for a book um and it turns out that not everyone has ideas for books and I've never had an idea for a book in my life, but I seem to have several behind me. Um, I eventually began to just piece together little bits of writing and, and was told by someone else I was writing a novel, at which point I burst into tears and then had to go away and discover what the plot was and put it together. And that was my first book, Clay. So that, that it, it sounds like there was like this amazing, this incredible freight of emotion and yeah it was paralyzing I felt like if I can't be a writer when I finally admitted it to myself I felt like if I can't do it I might as well not be alive and that is far too much pressure to put on yourself and so I couldn't do anything at all and I didn't for a long time what do you think what was your idea of what a writer was before you actually wrote did you have any like ideas of what what being a writer and writing books was well this is why i I mentioned my mum i think i had this example of it um it involving a lot of rejection and a lot of failure which it which it can do um but also it was really all-consuming for her and i think that when i conceived the idea or admitted the idea that I wanted to be a writer it was more to do with being a writer than actually writing um I didn't feel that I had any stories I didn't feel like a natural storyteller I knew that some of my elder siblings I'm the youngest of six um, when I was a kid would uh, would make up a story for me and I when I tried to make up a story there was nothing there and all I would do was look at novels that had already been produced and were you know on on the shelves and think well I can't do that because I don't have any ideas as finished and polished as that you know you look at the end result and you think well there's nothing in my head that looks 
looks like that. It's like it might as well be a meteorite that's like punched down from heaven, right? It's just yeah, this you can't, weird you, you artifact. Can't, you can't write a novel. No one can sit down and write a novel. That's not a thing that anyone ever does. You don't sit down and, and write the thing that becomes the thing that's on the shelves. And I didn't know that. And that just kept me paralysed. And, and, and I wasn't even writing in secret. I wasn't, I couldn't try at all. I couldn't, it was so painful and so live. Um, but you, and so you had this example of, you say you like, were interested in like becoming a, becoming a writer. Uh, and yet you have this, your primary example of that is this, is your, is your mum who, you know, from what you're saying, her, the, the, what you saw of it was an experience of sort of struggle and disappointment. And, and failure is like the key word that you yeah. used a few times. I know. What? And I know that I know that that's that. not that's not a good way to look at it, and I understand that it's not a good way to look at it because actually, what I've learned since is that failure is really really important because that's that's the point at which you learn and grow, and if you're not willing to fail, you won't get anywhere at all. So you have to risk failure, and you have to be able to sit in the room with your own failures and limitations. Otherwise, you know, get out, go and do something else. Did you ever get a sense of how your you know, did, did your mum talk about her her writing? Did you did you get a sense of what how she saw herself as a writer? Not really. I was quite young, um, but it was a, a constant presence in the house, and there was a feeling as well that us kids got in the way of it, and that we were we were slightly resented for getting in the way of this thing that she wanted very much. And so to to have taken that on, I think, and and um, competed with her for it would have been just too much of a risk while she was alive it's, it's so interesting that you sort of would see it as as a kind of com- as a kind of com- as a competition and that's like immediately that's quite it's quite scary isn't it's it awful, it, isn't it well and people say to me now your mum would have been so proud of you and i think i'm not sure that's true actually these are people that didn't know my mum and we'll say she would have been so proud. And I think actually it would have been really complicated for her. Complicated is a good, complicated is a very human, is a very human thing. I mean, a co- like it's com- it is complicated, Pro- maybe proud and resentful simultaneously. Mm, yeah. Maybe slightly appropriative of some of your successes, yes. right? Yeah, Go, well, yeah, you've got that possibly. from... Yeah, yeah. I mean, I knew that I was good with words and language. And I, I felt that if I could find a way into writing, there was a, a little core bit of me that felt like I would be good at it if I could only do it. If I could only find anything to write about, I would be good at the words and language, the craft. Um, and that's kind of what 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 kept me hoping that, that I would be able to find a way in. But it was the storytelling I, I felt that I didn't have. And mum was a good storyteller. Um, and I think perhaps what she lacked was, was the craft. So... Can you, there's this, you, so we're st- in, starting off in this situation where you've got this almost, almost like archetypal, like cautionary tale kind of like looming in your, uh, I don't mean to be dehumanising about that, but just in this one area. And then you, but some, but you did start after not writing for a while. You did start. I started writing accruing little things. fragments. How did you, how did you make the leap from? Because some people never make the leap from not writing anything no. at all to to fragments. Like that is, although fragments are still small, 
that is a that is a bigger gap than yeah. people realise. Can you talk about how, I, I how would, you started? I would love to be able to lay that out for you and say, oh, I woke up one morning and I realised X, Y, and Z, and then it all started to happen. But I think, um, on the one hand, the the the, the discomfort of not doing it you know outweighed began to outweigh the the fear of not doing it well but I don't remember a lot about how that happened and it really interests me that I don't remember because I when I remember the when I look back at that period of writing these little fragments it feels as though I had one hand writing and with my head turned away as if I wasn't letting myself see what I was doing and I think there were a lot of um, there was a lot of denial and a, and a lot of storytelling in my own head about what what I might have been up to, because one of the shocking things that I found when I had um, finished my my first novel was that I had thought that I had told a story that was as far from my own experience as I knew how to to do. I wrote about um, a little boy um, and he was mixed race. He lived in um, an urban setting. He didn't have any siblings. I thought I'd created a character very far away from myself. And the first reading I did uh, at Big Green Books in North London, as I was reading out a scene involving this little boy who's watching, uh, witnessing a dogfight, I realised that he was me and it was actually about um, witnessing a fight in my own home. And I had to hold it together on stage. And I had distanced myself very effectively in order to write the book. Um, from realising what I do, what I was doing, I and and I was aware when I was writing that I I found it very painful, and I hated it. Actually, I still find writing um, painful and difficult. I don't enjoy it at all. I love having done it, but I I I, I hate writing actually. Um, and it felt to me like um, I remember the metaphor that used to come into my mind. It felt like holding your hand on a radiator until your skin begins to to blister, and snatching it away when you kind of come away from the the laptop or the computer or whatever or, or notepad and then having to force myself back with this wound that was open having to force that wounded hand back onto the hot radiator I hated it I hated every second of it so I mean like I have to say like a lots of stuff you're saying I I really I it just speaks to my experience of, of writing as well and so some of the questions I'm asking you are not out of incredulity but as a as a kind of way of trying to get to the bottom of why why we feel these things right so any anyone is gonna i mean the, the obvious question is like you what what do you think is behind that need to get to get those words out especially when like in the beginning when they were fragments when they weren't a novel do you have do you have any memory or idea about what is your rationale for like why this needs to be done and why are they painful because that's a pretty strong metaphor of like physical pain and having to go back to this place that you know will hurt and yet and yet it was becoming more painful to keep it in yeah so what uh, what's going on there well there was there was another factor and part of that was to do with the fact that I found in my very early 30s that I had something to say. And I don't mean a story or a plot, because that's still not really how writing works for me. That's one of the second or third things that, that, that come along. Um, but I had a message. I had, I had, I wanted to use my voice 
to say something to the world and that thing turned out to be uh, about connecting with nature and I'd you know been living in in London since I was 21 um, and a lot of that time had been really miserable and I hadn't realized for a long time that it was because I had no contact with nature at all and I'd grown up in a very outdoor family and spent a lot of time on Dartmoor and you know I was also part of the, one of the last generations to play outside unsupervised as kids so you know I was outdoors all day in the summer holidays um, and you know just came back for food and in London I, I didn't have any of that contact and and but just you know was so taken up with the idea that you know I'm 21 I'm 22 I'm living in London this is amazing that I hadn't realized what I lacked and just became more and more strung out and depressed and disconnected um, and then when I began to change that for myself and I began to tune into the, the, the nature that's, that is in cities, but you have to sort of learn how to, to notice because it's on a different scale, um, it, it completely transformed my experience of living in London. It really did change, change my life. Um, and that's the thing that I found that I wanted to say. So suddenly writing wasn't just about um, self-fulfillment. It was about I have... I have a message for other people. I have something I want to say that I think counts, which is about you can live in a city and be deeply connected to nature and it can change your life. And so that became a, a, a driving factor behind that book was, was putting something out into the world that I thought was valuable. It was using my voice for a purpose that wasn't just, I want to be a writer. What, can you talk, a, you said there was a moment where you were, told by someone else this is a novel and you burst into tears can you just would you be able to elaborate on that a little bit like what do you think was going on there and how th it maybe changed things for you yeah it was um I had a friend who worked in publishing and he had said to me um he knew that I sort of had this ambition that I couldn't quite talk about um and he said, oh, I, I used to be friends with this uh, woman at, I can't remember which publishing house he worked at, but he said, she's recently gone freelance and she's being a writing coach. Would that be helpful? And I said, no, 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 I couldn't possibly do that. And he said, well, you know, she's offering these hour-long sessions, uh, introductory sessions for free because she's setting up this business. Why don't you go and talk to her? And I did. She was called Kathy, Kathy Gale. Um, she is wonderful. And she read through the bits that I had which I didn't think were connected at all and were little sketches of, of, of Brixton and parts of South London um, and and she said yes you know you're, you're writing a novel you just you need to keep going and it was absolutely extraordinary and I, I just I just lost the plot big time <laughs> I couldn't put myself do you know what emotions you were feeling at that, at that moment um, there was a big dose of fear God, I should think so, right? Like with all that, with all the with all the freight of what it meant to be a writer, the sense that it's uh, part identity, part destiny. You know, it's like being handed and, like and a scroll, yeah, right? And, and saying with my mum as well, and I didn't, I wasn't, I did want it, but I was also really frightened that I would fall short. Anyone is when they're like given a quest, right? Yeah. When yeah. the when the when the when the goblin climbs through your window and says, "Your time has come. This yeah, is your sword. You we need you." Yeah. So that was, but it was wonderful as well. Because I had never shown, you know, just showing somebody these bits and to have someone not laugh, to have someone not go, "Well, 
right, where should we start? Yeah. But to go, no, it's, it's great, keep going. God, amazing. And can you talk for, you've talked, you touched a little bit about uh, what clay is um, in, involves, but just for anyone who hasn't read it, can you give us a little idea of what the um, novel is about? Oh God, I hate that question. I'm so sorry. Uh, no, I'm not like not <laughs> like a slick elephant. Thousand words of what the novel's yeah. about. <laughs> okay, well, um, can you? I just guess. Is there any? I, I... I'm really bad at the whole elevator pitch thing. Partly because I don't. My novels aren't. The plot isn't the kind of primary driver for me. But it was. It was set in a city. Um, which was inspired by South London, but but wasn't specifically South London. And it was about five characters who lived around a small city park and interacted with that park in different ways and how their lives kind of intersected. And there's a little boy in it, TC, he's called, who still breaks my heart and I still think about him quite a lot. Um, and his friendship with an older man, uh, Joseph, who's a, who's a Polish immigrant, um, and the way in which their their friendship is is misinterpreted and not um allowed and what happens as a result of that do you do you find do you find this do you find uh that plot and story that there's there's something quite oppressive about uh the way that we talk about books are kind of implicit demand i am loading that question with it as a kind of <laughs> yes no i'm just like from what i because sometimes it is difficult to talk about something that is more to do with a kind of uh, mood or an environment or a setting. Uh, there's a, there's that desperation it to want to be able to. It can feel quite reductive mm. to to for for certain kinds of books, for the kind of books that that I write. Certainly, it does for me. Um, I mean, I start with I don't know what I start with. I start with fragments, and I start with um, I don't even start with characters. I start with place, I start, I want to know what season of the year it is and where it is, I want to know what the geology is like so I know what plants and trees are likely to grow there, I want to have, I want to have the place very firmly fixed um, and everything else comes after um, and that can mean sometimes then having to go back over the earlier stuff I've written and get rid of stuff that doesn't sort of contribute towards the momentum of the book and it means sometimes having to, to to try and speed things up especially in the early stages so um i sometimes feel like one of the big flaws that my books share is kind of getting going about halfway through which is a point where i've gone oh i know what it's about <laughs> and then have to go back and kind of try and make it have some propulsion it depends what you want out of something though right because <laughs> like and i'm gonna i i don't want to I, I i feel like i may be the worst person we to speak about this this is kind of what's called like a, a mutual morbidity right this is a comorbid uh relationship because i love nature writing i and what i get criticized about more than anything else is like oh tim spent a whole page talking about some ivy on a tree and yeah, it's like I get people who skip those bits but i don't care I, 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 I love write, reading those things. I can't write anything different than what, you know, I feel like I'm a tube of toothpaste and you squeeze me and the toothpaste that comes out at the end is what was inside me. And I can't do anything else. This is what I do. There's, I think there's no, so I mean, you, there's no need to be apologetic about it. And also that's, that I like, I love that stuff. Right. And I think just, you know, I just get it out of the way now. I think you're a fucking amazing nature writer and I oh, really, really, really <laughs> love 
reading it and I I feel like and I'm going to just jump straight into talking about uh, All Amongst the Barley but I the one thing that I I started reading it and I was like I felt like I was a uh, like a, a forensic pathologist in one of those US crime dramas who's like examined a corpse and this is a really odd metaphor but like and then kind of like looks up and, and like goes this is a professional job. Like I was just like, I was kind of, I was reading it and going, oh shit. And especially because, and again, this is the other reason that it was particularly is because you're writing about the kind of like interbellum period in East Anglia. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is like so my area of like nerding out. And, and early on you, you talk about Hayrick design and yeah. I'm like yeah yes that's <laughs> right that's good yes that's but do you know the- what do you know what there's this often this this thing seems to be taught that every scene has to contribute towards the plot of the book and that you shouldn't write anything that's extraneous and I really that really pisses me off I remember having someone come to a reading I did with my second book at Hawthorne time and he said I love this scene where there was a, a dead deer in the road and you know he stopped the car and he had to kill the deer and well, they were nearly dead and he had to kill the deer and blah, blah. But um, how did that contribute towards the plot of the book? And I just went, I don't know. I wrote it because I wanted to write it. I wrote it because it came into my head as a resonant image and I, I wanted and needed to write it. And and sometimes I'll write a scene and then I'll end up changing, you know, which is the main character in it because I need that scene in the book. And if it doesn't work with one character, I'll give it to someone else. But, you know, those are the, the fragments that I assemble and they become... You know, I, I will link them together to make a make a book that works. But that whole quite reductive idea of, you know, you, you you have to, everything has to be part of where the book is going and what the book means. I just, I just, no, not for me. And not for me, and it works for me. You know, I'm... I'm... It, it, I think, like, literary fiction, right, has got a tradition of the set piece, which I think what you're talking about there with like the 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 deer is that's you can have scenes that have some just have a mood or a thematic resonance that goes through the book and makes you feel unsettled but doesn't necessarily the like the deer isn't gonna like come back and it's like turns out uh that 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 deer was that deer was uh was the murderer or something like (laughs) that's but that's the kind of implication that people are saying right it's like how does this and and sometimes it comes from people sometimes it comes from people who've been told you're too stupid to enjoy books uh any interpretation you have of this book is going to be wrong and so sometimes people read that scene completely get it you know the set piece and then worry that they've missed a metaphor or something yeah. so I some think books are puzzles that need to be decoded rather than what did you feel when this scene yeah, happened yeah rather than just kind of dreams you know and and i don't know i i do I feel like like dreams are for individuals like art is for societies. You know, these are postcards from the inside. These are postcards from the edge, from the depths that, that tell us things. And that's the job of, of writers and artists and poets and photographers is to is to be in touch with what's going on in the collective subconscious and bring it bring it to the fore. And that that's what, you know, books do on an individual level they are they're, they're you know they mean what they mean they are what they are they're not they're not tools so i'm going to ask you now and i'm not going to ask you what your latest novel is 
all about because we've established. I've got an elevator pitch for this. Have one. you? Okay, go. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want to rob you of that. that no, I, d- I didn't do it on purpose, but it came to me midway through the writing. It's uh, folklore, farming, and fascism. Oh, nice. <laughs> Oh, that's so. That is. I. It sounds weird, but I, I'm so. I want to ask, like, how did you come? I. I. How did you come to be writing about? It? Uh, 1933. It starts right. 33 to 34. Yeah. Okay. Talk to me about how you came to be writing in that period in this particular place, uh, and what those things kind of mean to you. Okay, so I didn't have an idea for the book. Um, what I had is and I've gone back and found the moment in my notebook where the, the book was sort of it's like the, the little sperm that became the book you know it's like this kind of little note in the that's uh, where it all starts. and you read back and you think you poor sod you don't it's know what got, you're letting yourself in for everything inside it but it's not yeah it's, it, there's no relation to, to, to actually you know where it went but there's this note that actually at the top of the page it says what am I interested in question mark Nice. And then I've underlined it for neatness. And then it says, um, it says uh, the interwar period. Uh, It says old farms. No, it says farms, especially old ones in brackets. Um, It says folklore, uh, women and uh, species loss. Wow. uh, Species loss slash loss of abundance. And that turned into the book. So what I was doing was sitting there and thinking, what are the things that I care about enough to sustain my interest for two or three years? And I will make a book out of those things. So I had no plot. I had no characters. But I knew that those... If You know, I think the brain makes patterns. That's what it does. And you can assemble any number of things on a tray in front of you and make a story about them. So... You know, you don't you don't have to have thought of the, the plot of the book. You can just get some things that you like and that you know that you'll be interested in for a good long while. And at some point during the writing, your brain will go, I've put those together in various you know configurations and now I've made a book. And then you go, OK, cool, let's do it. Yeah, because you uh, because assembling those things, almost no matter how you assemble them, they will suggest a shape and they will suggest a relationship to each other and they will right exactly and start forming patterns and, and right? you need limitations you know the the hard thing is to sit there and go right i'm going to write a novel now and it could be about anything and you can't do anything because there's there's too much there's too much choice so you know that's part of the process of starting to limit what's on the table and what you're going to work with and that becomes very productive it's like sitting down and saying well i'm going to write a sonnet you know immediately you've got some structure immediately mm. you, you've got some constraints so that's where that's where the book started. Yeah, and that's like an immensely for for all the kind of talk of you know, like the, the, you know it's about a dream and you're discovering things. Your actual approach is incredibly practical and straightforward, which is like, what am I interested yeah. about? It's like an am- amazingly pertinent question that so few writers <laughs> actually directly ask themselves, uh, possibly at any point in their career, right? Like it's, I think that's it's kind of genius, right? Well, these notebooks are really interesting. I I tend to use them. So I write on a computer, but then I, I go to a notebook when I'm stuck and that's where my thinking is kind of freer. And I do ask myself these questions and I will write out what the question is. And I see it all the way through my notebooks. You know, I'll be kind of going, what is wrong with this character? Question mark, underlined. She is a bit boring. And I, I, it's a way of slowing my thoughts down as well. So part, part of that is a habit 
of of stopping and slowing down and recording a thought process so I can go back to it and and think through it again. Um, what wasn't on the list is fascism, though, and that it's that was a that came much later. You know, I started this book in 2015, I think. Um, you know, EU referendum a long way in the future. Trump, not even a possibility. Um, and it was in the process of writing it that um, the world changed in a in a enormous unimaginable way now it just seems like such a simpler time and I suddenly realized god I'm writing a book set in 1933-34 now we're suddenly talking about that period it's become live for us and is being spoken about as a parallel and if I produce a book that you know is just about the end of um, horsepower and the beginning of mechanization on an East Anglian farm and don't talk about what the 30s is also you know famous for and, and, and resonant for then it's going to be a really weird elephant in the room so I had to I had to get a lot braver and I had to kind of get my shit together and go right okay I'm going to do it talk to me about farming and fascism uh what would you like to know I would like to know what <laughs> like I am really really interested in all these things and so i'm trying to keep my questions short and perfunctory rather than going oh yeah and then and also because what an awful thing to geek out about going oh god i'm really finally i get to have a conversation <laughs> about uh, uh, about fascism <laughs> like, i don't mean it like that but particularly in this period and particularly about around sort of rural agrarian fascism and things that we don't necessarily think of as being related to fashion in well, the this is this is what fascinated me so for me fascism is is something that occurs on the far right or it it was something that occurred on the far right that's that's what i thought and i thought that people that were interested in the environment and nature writing things like that were were on the other end of the spectrum and we were all quite safe and green and liberal and lovely yikes <laughs> <laughs> and then um, I began to learn various things, for instance, that um, the one of the founders of the Soil Association, so the, the, um, the start of our organic movement in this country, was Jorian Jenks, who was the agricultural advisor to the British Union of Fascists. Um, so, our, you know, and you, when you think about it, it makes sense. So the Soil Association were all about the purity of the soil and they were concerned about contamination and those ideas of contamination and purity are at the heart of fascism wow um and even to this day you know if you if you tunnel into uh deep enough into the ecological movement you will come out at eco-fascism so it's like a circle and you go far enough left or far enough right and that's where you end up wow. and these links are still there and they're still very live and you look at um for instance the the uh big resurgence of interest in folklore and that that is being taken over well, no, it's not being taken over but there are attempts to use folklore to prove certain connections between people and place mm. um you know it, it's it happens in nature writing there is a strand of nature writing that is that is to do with um indigenous species and indigenous humans and that really frightens me the idea that this area that i love and that i work in and that that you know is is a home to me and is my kind of place where i express myself intellectually and, and spiritually is as open to contamination from fascist beliefs as anywhere else and so I wanted to go back to this period you know well, I was already writing about this period and, and learning about um, 
how fascism took over, not just in cities at that time, but in lots of rural areas. And there were these uh, little proto-fascist organisations that sprung up all over the countryside, um, many of them connected with farming. And, and, you know, farming was undergoing a terrifying depression at the time, um, very similar to the one we've, we've just lived through. And um, there were lots of concerns about foreigners who at the time were, were mostly Jewish people, but not exclusively. Um, and about concerns about the EU, or, you know, not called the EU at the time, but, um, and, and, and lots of ideas about protectionism and autarky and, and just, um, you know, Britain for the British and, and nativism. And, and that really was very much connected to this sort of blood and soil ideology that was, you know, creeping around Europe at the time. Um, so suddenly the book shifted gear. Um, and I had to find a way to to bring all of that in without it overbalancing it, because I knew I didn't. I knew that I wasn't. I knew I, I knew I was still a a nature novelist, whatever that means. But I, I you know, I wasn't. That was not going to be the heart of. It was going to be the heart of the book, but it, I couldn't let it overbalance the book. The book still had to be about um, landscape, and it had to be about beauty, and it had to be about innocence and it had to it had to hold its line but get bigger and that was really hard finding that balance was really hard i think what you do brilliantly in this book and what quite clearly took a huge amount of work is is basically i I just don't i don't think there's much point in writing a novel if you're going to throw out the dialectic of fiction and simply have it as a talking point for one uh you know as a didactic lesson in one particular ideology i really didn't want it to be like a morality tale and i think and immediately you know sometimes people hear that and they go oh so what have you done gone kind of like oh actually nazis they're kind of they're all right and it's it's not that it's about going they don't they don't sort of they don't like pull up in like a a black saloon car one day and all pile out and it's like the day the nazis came to town and they're all dressed in swastikas and they're all saying like the gen there's like genuine concerns that farmers have at the time about confusion about like world markets sucking the money out of stuff that make them very vulnerable yes. to like people coming in and initially coming out with ideas that you would hear on the left going yes. big bi- big business big international financiers are are ripping you off yes. well that seems reasonable enough um this land we need to like people need to look after the the land and um and stop own, another war yeah. you know well you, you know i was one of the people i really was really interested in was henry williamson who wrote tark the otter which is you know probably the greatest work of nature writing that that we have in this country or certainly one of um and it is an utterly beautiful luminous piece of writing and he was somebody that fought in the trenches in the first world war and was in, deeply damaged by that as as many people were and uh, what he wanted was for there never to be another conflict he wanted brotherhood with Germany and he believed in nature he had that spiritual belief in nature and that led him to the Nuremberg rallies so you can start somewhere really pure with the best of intentions and you can end up somewhere really dark 
I mean, he was fighting in the First World War in the time of the uh, Christmas Day Armistice, wasn't he? He so was. He got to see... People always think of the Armistice as this moment where of, like, incredible, you know, humanity where, oh, isn't that beautiful that they could do that in the middle of the war? But what strikes me from, like, reading Williamson talking about the First World War is I feel like that moment of a truce and then the next day everyone goes back to slaughtering each other. I feel at some level, he because he, he imagines Adolf Hitler being a young fighter on the other side during that armistice. Yeah. And I feel like something about that broke his mind. Yeah. Uh, because it's like, hey, we're going to go and play football. And now we're going to kill each other. And it's 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 like in the same way as like going up to the moon isn't the thing that sends astronaut mad, astronauts mad. It's like when they come home again. Yeah, there's no digesting it. There's no there's no making sense of that experience and carrying on. You know, it it, it was transformative in the worst way. But he that's not to say, you know, he took a wrong path. But a lot of what went wrong started with good intentions and you've got to remember that at the time the word fascism which I don't use ever in the book by the way because it's so loaded now but at the time wasn't a bad word at all it didn't have any of the the weight that it has now it was a new kind of politics that would hopefully lead to a better place he... you know hindsight is a great thing but at the time that I'm writing about nobody knew what was going to happen no one knew where this was going well, what you're, and, and what you're, I don't, this may be, this was the feeling I got from it is what you're tr- trying not to do is make us as readers feel too smug and safe. No, you I'm know? trying to disrupt that. I'm trying to disrupt um, that feeling that, that we would, ne- you know, we could never make that mistake again because we, we're much wiser. And also that, that um, feeling of um, rosy nostalgia that we have about our own past, you know, this idea of, England as being, you know, the shadows, the meadows, the lanes, the guild halls, the carved choirs, the, you know, sound of cricket on willow, whatever. <laughs> cricket yeah, on willow. Yeah. <laughs> Leather on willow yeah. and the warm beer and all of that, which, by the way, is a vision of the southeast of England. It's not a vision of Yorkshire pit villages. It's not a vision of, you know, eel catchers in the fens. It's a vision of wealthy home counties, villages. It's Anglican, it's wealthy and it's white and it's pre-Windrush and so what I wanted to do was conjure up this this you know rosy nostalgic vision of England that seems to be being called up now again as it was in the 30s and then disrupt it and say no hang on this isn't this isn't where what we need to be hanging on to as a sense of who we are because it, it hasn't got everyone in it. Because Williamson himself went on to try and start his own farm in Norfolk, Norfolk didn't he? yeah he did yeah I've got um I've got an early edition of the story of a Norfolk farm um which one of the dedicatees is <laughs> Mosley and then he there's a note from the author at the front I don't know if you've seen this one yeah he says that he's had to leave a chapter out oh my god I can only imagine what was in that chapter i know they've made him leave a chapter out and he hopes that when the world has uh, reached a more balanced time he can include it again and yeah what what was in that chapter it's horrifying well considering that 
in the material that is left in the book, on his mother's deathbed, he tries to reassure her on her deathbed um, by telling her that the thousand year Reich is going to bloom and her, her grandchildren are going to live in the paradise of fascism. I mean... Talk about, like, misjudging the zeitgeist. It's like he he puts out a book in the late 1930s where he goes, here's my story of how I tried to run a farm on fascist principles. He he misgaged... But but I agree with you. And I think, you know, people will hear this and they think, oh, you must... You know, you're kind of doing a kind of hug-a-Nazi type of thing. No, I'm not. Absolutely not. What I'm trying to say is the world is really, really complicated. And when we try and reduce things to black and white, we do ourselves a disservice and that's not vigilance either if you think you know what nazis are going to be wearing you're going to miss them exactly and and also there is you know certainty feels very safe certainty feels easy everyone likes to know that we're on the right side and that that the world is is the world is binary exactly um it is harder to live with complexity and live with doubt it means never feeling that comforting feeling that you're on the right side but it's vital. That's that's what will that's what will help us is that is cultivating in ourselves individually that capacity to live with complexity. My dad, my grandmother grew up in the nineteen thirties in Aachen in Germany, and I remember being around the dinner table on Boxing Day when my dad asked my grandmother, "Why didn't you do anything to stop the Holocaust?" Because it was just down to her. Well, but he was, but but even so, yeah. But he, I mean, he wasn't he wasn't banging the table. He was just asking why didn't you, uh, meaning her, but also meaning the people around here. Why didn't you do anything? Why weren't you fighting it? Why right. didn't you stop it? And she was, I mean, she was a child at the time. But he said, "Did you know?" And she said, "Well, look, we." She said, I remember going on a school trip and we went past Auschwitz and somebody asked, why are there so many empty prams on Auschwitz station? And the policeman at the end of her road went and served in Auschwitz and came back and locked himself in the attic and a week later shot himself with his police pistol. So she said, we knew, we had all these hints and whispers that something was going wrong. But she said, and this is the thing that stuck with me. She said, there were bombs falling out of the sky. We thought we knew who our enemies were. Yes. And that, I think, for fascism to thrive, you have to be absolutely sure of who the baddies are. I mean, to be clear, like Williamson would have been a horrible person to be around. I'm sure he, like, famously Certainly in the later years, yeah, he dashed a kitten's brains well, out against the uh, a floor for eating a fish supper. That right? was like, that was reported by somebody else. So that might so not. It's kind of fairly third hand that story, but 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 yes, that's possibly true. We don't know. He also, but he also certainly had severe and untreated post-traumatic stress disorder there's a i've read a quote from his son saying that he'd several times he would have to drag his father uh away from his mother as his dad would start hitting her and then his dad would collapse into tears and said and said who am i 
that my son must stop me beating my wife and then his son said I think it was something to do with the war and I think it what I think Henry Williamson was deeply damaged I think he was by every standard I could take probably a really not kind nice or charitable person who hurt a lot of the people around him and I don't mean to sort of in any way he was you know he, he, he committed domestic violence he was a, an open advocate for fascism i don't want to like sound like i'm underplaying no that, and but... i'd like to point out that he's not actually a character in the book either oh no of course. yeah <laughs> no but like it's the but it's that but it's that thing i suppose but he's often as a as a kind of like symbol of fascism and british fascism he's often pulled up and like people get hurt by it that's anyway um i think that just while we're on this subject i think that, that that one of the things that fiction can do um better than any other art form in fact is 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 what i tried to do in this book and what i've tried to do in all of my books um which is represent uh competing realities because you are allowed access to someone's interiority in fiction which you don't get in films you always see people from the outside however well it's done you're looking at people in front of you as you do in life but fiction allows you to go inside somebody and you can if you are skilled enough ask a reader to inhabit one one reality and one subjectivity and ask them to have not necessarily sympathy but to but to but to it's cliche isn't it to see the world through through that character's eyes and then ask them to do it with another character and ask them not to make a judgment between them but to understand the ways in which those two realities overlap and that is an exercise in extending our imaginative capacity and our imaginative sympathy and so in my my last book I, I did it quite a lot with a character called Jack who's a vagrant um, he's homeless and he's you know he sort of turns up in villages and causes disruption and, and lots of the villagers are very frightened about him and think that you know he should be reported but then when you inhabit Jack yourself you realize how harmless he is and how vulnerable he is and I wanted to challenge people out of some of those judgments that we make about people that don't necessarily fit in and that was harder to do in this book because it's first person yeah <laughs> but um but that's always the position that I that I want to take is is to is to challenge people out of their sh their certainty and their sureness because because I really believe that that is what will keep us safe. I I want to just not moving away from fascism, but just to because it's it's uh I I you know I used it as a talking point because I think it's such a it's such a rich and difficult and nuanced thing. I think it's actually one of the, it's like one of those topics that f only fiction and only like character led things can really engage with in a, um, in a way that's useful. I, I just want to kind of talk to the, to the other side of that. And all these things are interconnected, like you said, but with this kind of intimacy, splendid intimacy with uh, nature that your uh, narrator has, but also with this, changing world the end of horsepower the beginning of uh industrialized farming i mean i guess we're like a we're only like a year off the beginning of like the national grid and things like that appearing in the world can you talk a little bit about the 
I'm trying to not use the cliche, the changing face of England, but you, you know, that how the world that this character knows is is changing with incredible rapidity. Yeah, yeah. I felt like there was a generation between the wars when um, one belief system gave way to another really quickly. And so, you know, the, it wasn't just about horsepower. With, with horsepower, there came a huge um, freight of folklore and superstitions and kind of magical beliefs. Um, so the people that work with horses um, were initiated into almost like a, a cult. Um, and they were sworn to secrecy about what how they did it and uh, you know they could stop a horse in its tracks and it wouldn't move again for several hours or you know they could make horses go backwards all sorts of, of things wow. and they never talked about how they did it and we've got some ideas about how some of it was done now but we're still really not sure um and there was a ritual around it around uh, uh, there was a toad's bone and fern seeds that floated up river you know this was this was being being a witch but for men um so, you know, the, uh, there were um, hagstones that you hung over stable doors, so all sorts of, it was, it was magic, it was witchcraft. Um, and then these same men that had been born into a line of horsemen, generations and generations, were asked to keep a tractor in good repair. So suddenly they're working out how to oil the tractor and put petrol in it and stuff like that. And, and a lot of farms would have had tractors and horsepower at the same time. And that seems to me extraordinary because suddenly you've got a completely different kind of machine that needs to be cared for without any of those superstitions and, and beliefs. And anyone who's... Ju- I mean, just... think It's just that incredible thing of having... Because what I think is really amazing in, 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 in the book, and, and one of the things that... Is actually these are not... These are not these are not like rubes, right? These are people who uh, we get these amazing descriptions of like the changing of the seasons and having to deal with uh, different weather, sort of they radically had, changing your yeah. immediate environment. They had knowledge that we have we can't get anywhere near. So 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 they live actually much more than someone you know like shut inside a house in a double glazed house they live in a world a dynamic world that is changing all the time uh, I, I think that's one of the things that really uh, shocked me and uh, woke me up when I was reading it was actually this is a this is an environment that is in flux all the time that is that but that isn't what's going on these but then there's this this thing that is almost disrupting Almost, it's almost like it's disrupting the seasons themselves. This, these, these, these big um, seismic changes in in technology, also in ideology, also in uh, and international markets. Yeah. That, you know, um, things like wheat were beginning to be traded as a commodity for the first time, instead of just sold locally to be made into flour. It's 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 and you. It that's what I. It's it. There are forces that are sort of larger than than the immediate yeah i felt like i had my my central character who's 14 um edie and and there's sort of a series of concentric circles around her that are exerting pressure on her you know within her immediate family within the district weather wise in terms of international you know the depression and international finance and then beyond that with with the looming second world war and and that she becomes the you know the the crux, the the kind of the point that shatters. I think. Can you talk a little bit about how 
we take a because this is something I get to when I talk to like science fiction and fantasy authors a lot is they get these ideas for like these milieus that are really exciting and I've got you know I, you're gonna have a world where um uh, where you know there's uh, uh, lasers and uh, short range time travel is possible and then they get stuck when they go well how do I like crunch all that down and so we've been talking about things I've, I mean because I've been leading it in a kind of like ideology kind of like big themes uh, thing and I think also we sometimes I sometimes do that because it's it's difficult and it sounds a bit woolly to say I loved like hanging out there I love I love the ritual of the I love the fact that you know I talk about crunchy specificity on this show all the time that's my term for like knowing the words for things but there's a kind of magic in in your book and a kind of I don't know what I'm trying to say but they're just the names of the different flowers and trees it meant so much to me even though i didn't i didn't know them myself i'm taking it on trust that you knew what you're talking yeah, about well, a lot of them i did but then i i did a lot of research so i researched what would have been the country names for for things you know i've spent time coming out here at different points in the agricultural year so i could see what stage the crops were at and what was growing but then i needed to make sure those were the terms that would have been used in the 1930s and i used as as much old, you know old terminology as i could um to 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 knock the reader out of the present and into the past um i made sure that i used not just farming terms so when you're thatching a rick there's all sorts of terms for the the sprinkles and the you know different I loved sprinkles <laughs> it's awesome but then but then when you look into it those terms would have been different in devon yorkshire wales so i had to make sure there were the stanglian terms for thatching a rick as well and from that period and not the 1870s when the terms might have been different. And then within the, the characters in the in the book, I, I, I realised that there would be a, a change in their generations. So the grandparents' generation use a lot more dialect terms than Edie's parents do. And Edie uses very few. Her brother uses a bit more than she does because she's a bigger reader. So I was really, really careful with, with the language in that way. And also... Um, I ended up, uh, the, the syntax in the book is different than if I was writing it in the present day. So I used a lot more commas and a, there are a lot more multi-clause sentences and words like um, uh, I used uh, rather instead of very quite a lot. I was rather hot. You know, immediately that gives you a period feel. Um, you'd say you wouldn't use a word like normal. There's all sorts of words we use now that just don't work. Then you'd say you'd say usual in the usual way, you know. And, and that I loved, I loved that part of it. I loved the subtlety of making sure that my comma usage was right for the 1930s. And then um, I had to go and find, I chose my own copy editor because I didn't want someone to come and knock it all out again because <laughs> I'd been so careful. And I tracked down um, a woman called Sylvia Crompton who worked on Frances Spufford's Golden Hill and said, I want her because that hell. had been... See, I, I've been a copy editor Whoa. and a proofreader. That's that's one of my previous lives. Um, I did this as a job, and so um, I I knew I needed it to be done really well, and by someone who would have an ear for period yeah. syntax and punctuation. So See, I, this is the thing: <laughs> is you talk about this now, and suddenly the research and the texture, as, although you've sort of said before, actually, I quite hate writing. Like when you talk about it now, bit. this is yeah, but well, that is writing. It is, but what the the difficult bit for me is the making stuff up it's the 
it's the getting the clay on the wheel, not the making the pot. I find it really difficult to get the clay on the wheel, but the editing, anything that's sort of the, the, the craft, the actual words and, and, ed, and the editing process, I'm really good at. It's the making stuff up I find painful and difficult because that's when I have to go into my own self. And, you know, something happens to Edie in, in the book um, that, you know, took a lot of uh, going back and thinking about things that had happened to me that was, you know. But there's that thing that, um, was it John Fowles said? Uh, somebody said that the imagination is like a compost heap and you put more and more things on it and they rot down. But, you know, to get to get the good stuff out, you have to go where the fire's hottest. You have to go in the middle of the compost heap where it's on fire. That's the bit that's valuable. That's the bit that's fertile. That's the bit that you want. You can't dick around with the little bits on top of the compost heap. Um, I, so, of course, it hurts. Can, that's, I want to... I'd like... If it's all right, I'd like to just jump on to that a little bit because I spoke to the uh, psych, social psychologist William... Uh, sorry, James W. Pennebaker a few weeks ago and he talked about his research into people writing about uh, trauma and difficult things and things that were very painful and how they had all sorts of results where people who are able to do that uh have 50 percent fewer doctor's visits for the next oh, six right. months yeah and um they've done punch biopsies where they do like a little centimeter punch out someone's arm and they heal quicker if they've yeah. done writing like that but while they're writing heal slower for the actual period of writing that there's a uh a, a drop in uh, uh like white blood cells or wow. whatever the and and then it goes up have you got any advice or steering because i find it very difficult to say to people you need to like you need to like walk into that fire because um i think you're right but it's a hard thing to sort of ask of someone else yes, you can you can make that decision yourself because you're self-determining yeah. and you chose to do that no one was pressuring to it was entirely your decision yeah. um have you got any advice or for anyone who sort of feels ready to do that um, on how they can kind of handle that because it's a very delicate and potentially stressful and emotionally disruptive process. How did you survive that? I think that um, the process of writing anything, even if you're not using that material that is most painful and difficult for you, just the process of creating narrative is helpful and because what you're what you're doing and what you're practicing doing is is creating meaning and that is a, an incredibly human act to take a series of events and make a meaning out of them and that i think you know humans are meaning making machines that's what we do and a lot of writers i know have found that the process of beginning to write has coincided with a process of self-discovery um and uh of coming to terms with making a narrative that makes sense because you know anyone who's who's done any therapy will know that it's not so much the truth or otherwise that you uncover in therapy it is um, a meaningful narrative that connects you to your own past so that you can tell a story of who you are and how you got here so just that act itself is valuable, whether or not you choose to go into the the, the, the really hot, tricky places. Um, that's not to say that writing and therapy are the same thing at all, because they're, they're not. But but the 
what they do share is um, is a process of learning to be very alive to the passing moment, to learn to notice in yourself what the 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 texture of experience is like, to be able to say to yourself, what is it like to be drunk? What is it really like to be drunk? How would I represent that in words? What is it like to be angry? What is it like to have amazing sex? What is it like to have terrible sex? And that process of noticing in a non-judgmental way means being kind to yourself. It means um, being honest and truthful with yourself is what makes you a, a better writer and it's what makes you a better human. And one of the reasons I really hate tips for writers is that it cheats people of that process. If what you absorb is 10 tips for being a better writer, you know, write first thing in the morning or whatever those things are, you are circumventing a process of self-knowledge that is good for you as an individual and will make you a better writer. Will that do? That's a, <laughs> I, that's, in, that's a absolutely wonderful. I, that's a, such a wonderful... Uh, I don't have anything to add to that. I mean, I... I it's just a, I was just sitting here learning and uh, feeling in awe of that. But you know this stuff. You know this stuff. It, we all have to do it. You have to do the work. You there aren't there aren't any shortcuts. If you if you want to do this and it matters to you and you really want to do it seriously, there is no other way than learning how to be a better human, which means getting to know yourself and forgiving yourself and and going down that route of of, of narrative and meaning which is just intensely what what being human is I suppose I've, I've found I felt so lost sometimes when I'm writing and so because I've had that same thing that you were talking about of equating my identity with being a writer and if I fail this then I might as well not exist yeah. um, I have really I don't want to leave I just uh, I just don't I always want to try and it's maybe it's better you know maybe it's good to like trust people to be able to get through that maybe that's the thing that we can do to our friends and the people we care about who are writing who feel lost by it who feel stuck in the process of doing it um is to say i'm here for you but i can't walk up the mountain for you no you can't fix it you have to let people do that work themselves that is it that is part of it the, the failure and the fear and the horrors that that is it that is doing the job that is it so do you think do you think that suffering is inherently a part of writing not in that ridiculous pretentious you know i'm going to be a tortured artist way i am intensely happy much of the time it's it's not a prerequisite. There's no need to walk around looking miserable and feeling like you have to drink absinthe every night. But um, a process of coming to terms with yourself and the difficult things that you've that have happened to you, in order that you can be more accepting of other people and therefore um, create a wider range of characters and and be and be more humane in your writing you know that is often a painful process for people because we've all got our stuff everyone's got stuff everyone's you know 
either had a difficult time at home or had a difficult time at school or has things that have happened to them that were outside their control or are sad now or frightened about the future everyone's got stuff and like you say if you think you're not writing about that stuff you probably you are might be yeah <laughs> it's, it's really um, and it can come up in the most oblique like dreams it can come up in the most oblique sneaky ways and sometimes that's your way of giving yourself permission yeah to sometimes write about you, it. you think you're not going to go with a fire hottest but you have and 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 you only realize later on or it's like a it's like an eerie Sometimes I found in my writing that you, you get these sort of like eerie, almost like not premonitions, but like little omens of something that's going to happen to you six months. Some emotional thing you're going to go through or some crisis that you're going to face that is like obliquely <laughs> foreshadowed in your writing. Yeah, because I think you, it's a bit like a seismograph. You know, it's that pencil on the bit of paper that's recording all sorts of stuff that's going on, you know, quite deep under the surface sometimes. Yeah, I definitely, you know, my 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 big funny poem about a buffoon who drinks all the time to stop himself feeling and everything and i was you know very much writing about oh this is just a character of someone i someone i used to know and then and then like a year later realize i've got an alcohol problem and stopped drinking and i was like oh oh that was me <laughs> Oh, and like everyone else who'd like heard me doing it was going, well, no, we assumed that was about you, Tim. And I'm like, oh, everyone knew this was autobiographical except me. Wow, that's an incredible moment. So now you have um, you finished the book and often when I talk to people, there's this uh, there's this disconnect with the book that they that currently people are getting their hands on. And what they're actually doing in their life, which is something they're in a completely different place in the process. Are you working on anything at the moment and how is it going? Uh Um, Yes. And I am not going to talk about it because one of the things I've learned for me is that, um, you know, there's that scene in one of the Winnie the Pooh books where Pooh's got a balloon. He's taking it to eel and he's got the air in it and he accidentally lets air out and then he's holding a little damp rag. So I kind of feel like an idea is like a is like a balloon full of air, and if I go around, you know, kind of go little bits of air out, then I don't have anything I want to play with anymore. Um, because you've but kind it's of not fulfilled a novel. that. It's Ooh. not not a novel, and it's, and it's not nonfiction. And I, I just I without sort of talking about the idea, but how are you? Because you've kind of like you've got on the one hand, you've got this beautiful kind of like finished thing that people can pick up this novel that's out people can read that you're reading out to other people and is kind of where you you took it as far as you could and it's where you wanted to get it and on the other hand you are having to work on something that's new and you're feeling your way through it and I just wonder how are you dealing with the sort of disjunction with on one hand seeing your kind of like best work and then the other hand having to like roll your sleeves up and get some new clay on the wheel honestly yep you don't have to be honest if you want. You can. No, I've been honest. And I'm going to be honest. It's it's very weird um, carrying on promoting a book when you finished it quite some time ago. It feels to me a bit like being harnessed to a corpse. It feels a bit like I've killed it and it's dead, and I'm still having to drag it around with me, <laughs> and I can't get away from it. <laughs> Which is, you know, not to say I'm not also really proud of it and everything, but. Um, it, it feels like it's it's done because you you've read it hard. right <laughs> yeah you're like I'm I've finished I'm it's over I'm imaginatively not there um 
but you've still and it's got new to, do all to this us, work. right? We all come to yeah, it. Yeah, everyone's you, really excited about but, it. You're like, oh yeah, God. But you've been in that world, and then eventually it like fills up and fills up, and then it kind of spits you out. Yeah, you've been separated. And there's no room from, from it. it yeah, anymore. it's become separate from you, but it's still, you know, attached to me. I don't know. I've got some mixed metaphors here, but maybe it's an umbilical cord, and it's sort of. I don't know. That's not very nice. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no. So, but then that's great because that's why that explains why we keep going and we don't just go, ah, God, I'm not going through that process again. It's because you can't play in that place anymore. It's finished with you and now no. you've got to move on. And there's that feeling also of when you're at the start of something, you feel, even if you don't have a plan for where it's going, there's this sort of shiny feeling about it, like it's going to be perfect this time and it's going to. It's just going to be incredible and you're going to totally do it and you're going to nail it. And then when you've produced something, it's never like that. It's a compromise. What you've produced is always a compromise. But then you start something else and you're like, no, this time, this time it's going to be perfect. And of course, by writing the novel, you teach yourself how to write the novel that you would have written. Yeah, every book's an apology for the book before. Hmm. And, and, and I think, but also, I, I just because I think, you know, it is a compromise, but also it's often a... And often it's like a mistranslation. And often, like we've said, there's a kind of magic where it ends up being about something that you didn't expect it to be. And so although the the journey from your brain to the page, it may have become different. Sometimes it's about more than you thought it was going to yeah, be. Yeah, right? that takes me a little while, though before I can look back on something and go, oh, that was actually, that was quite good. I'm not quite at that stage yet. There'll be a point probably next year when I'll open it and look at it and go, God, did I write that? That's, look at all those words. When you can't remember any of your research about the 1930s anymore. Yeah. And you're like, how does this person know? And, and I've forgotten, you know, all the bits where it went wrong and bits that got cut out and moved around and stuff. But yeah, at the moment, I'm still not quite there yet. Well, thank you so, so much for being so generous with thank your time you today. It's been really... And thank you for tolerating all my questions about Henry Williamson and fascism. <laughs> it's not uh, a book about Henry Williamson, just, <laughs> just to say. <laughs> um, and uh, if people want to uh, follow you online, how can they do so? Uh, I am, I live on Twitter um, for most of my waking life, and it's M underscore Z underscore Harrison. Okay, thank you very much. And of course, everyone listening, I will put a uh, link to uh, all the books we've uh, talked about in the show notes of today's episode. So if you want to get hold of a copy, please do click that and um, you'll be able to go through and, and get them. Although, if you can go, if you're able to uh, reach a bricks and mortar bookstore by you, then of course, do please give them yes. your patronage. Thank you very, very much for being here and um, everyone listening. A pleasure. Have a wonderful, wonderful writing week. I hope may your moments of craft be full of little pleasures and may your suffering bring you knowledge and peace.